Welcome to old, old reading. Oh my God. Why am I awesome. having such a hard time with this? <laughs> All right, focus, Rachel. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and for all other lovers of the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. In a couple weeks, we have one of our full-length episodes, uh, a sort of locust swarm of an episode featuring Dr. Rolf Jacobson. But for now, another sort of, you know, aphid invasion uh, of an episode, a little mini episode with our own Rachel Wren leading us through Jeremiah 29 bits and pieces which is the lectionary text for October 13th. Take it away, Rachel. Yeah, thanks. So we've been in Jeremiah a lot lately, um, really since August 25th, with one little breakout to dip into Lamentations, which you covered for us last week, and um, showed us how, you know, Lamentations is typically assigned or attributed to Jeremiah, so they uh, they included something else that's been attributed to Jeremiah in the midst of this continuous reading. But these next two weeks will be our final two weeks in Jeremiah for the fall, which is kind of a phew, we made it. And then we jump into the favorites of the Bible, Habakkuk and Haggai. I mean, raise your hand if you're not in love with those guys, right? <laughs> But before we get to Habakkuk and Haggai, we finish up with two really wonderful texts, two scriptures that are often quoted and much more famous than some of the other texts of Jeremiah, like the bad figs of chapter 24 or something. Mm. These two have been adopted with love and appreciation. And you can really see why when you read them out loud. You know, verse 3 has got Elhaza, Shaphan, Gamaria, Hilkiah, Zedekiah, Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, does that make your heart ring or what, Tim? <laughs> yeah, those are fun. Yeah, the bane of the existence of people who read in church our Sunday are the names, right? Right. But they tell us important things. What's funny, though, about this list of names is that they say something important in a really kind of subdued or understated way. Because on the surface, it says that the queen, the king, the queen mother, the royal attendants, the officials, the craftspeople, and the smiths had left Jerusalem. And it sounds a bit as if they're all going on holiday in the country, right? A little British. (laughs) Shall we have some tea? But no... What it's actually telling us is that the end of life as they know it in Jerusalem is just around the corner because it means that the first exile has happened. Babylon, before it destroys Jerusalem in 587, actually exiles people about a decade earlier. And really, once that happens, it's the beginning of the end. The giant tidal wave of empire has already slammed into the walls of Jerusalem once. And when the next king, Zedekiah, rebels, the tidal wave will sink Jerusalem altogether, violently and without mercy. But what we hear is the king left. Tim, do you have any like Scandinavian descended Midwestern family? Because this reminds me of when I call one of them and they say, I say, how are things? And they're like, oh, fine. Just had something a little strange pop up at the doctor's office. And you're like... (laughs) Excuse excuse me? (laughs) Right. Understated. Understated. Exactly. Exactly. So the text that follows is in that sort of setting. Jeremiah is writing a letter to the people who are not just in the doctor's office, to continue the metaphor, but they're undergoing heavy chemo treatments because this is written to the people who are already in exile. 
What's even more interesting than the list of names is what comes in verse 1, when it tells us to whom exactly Jeremiah sent this letter. It's to the priests, the prophets, and the rest of the elders of the exilic community. Now, Tim, what do you know about the relationship between Jeremiah and the priests and prophets of Jerusalem up to this point? Is it a happy relationship? Oh, yeah, they were all buddy-buddy, right? Yeah, it was so bubbly, right? (laughs) They were attending conferences together and encouraging each other in self-care, right? Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. Definitely not. Jeremiah hated those guys. They were the bane of his existence. They are the people he blames for the death of morality and the decay and destruction of his country. Is this sounding familiar at all? (laughs) Is this sounding like any other country we might know and love? And there's really no particular political party I'm thinking of here. Pick one and imagine how the members of that party feel about the members of the other party. Jeremiah is sitting down to type out a tweet to the members of the opposing party, which he blames for everything. And this is what he says in verses 5 to 7. Build houses and live. Plant gardens and eat fruit. Marry. Drink too much at your son's wedding celebration and laugh at the birth of your daughter's daughter. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Live in shalom with your enemies. What would it look like to live in shalom with your enemies on enemy territory? It's a radical idea, and that's your preaching point number one. To his enemies, Jeremiah is sending a message of love. And more importantly, if we see this, it's not just Jeremiah who's sending this message. Verse 4 begins with the prophetic messenger formula, Thus says the Lord, Koamar Adonai, which is basically a fancy way of saying, These are not my words, these are God's words. Thus says the Lord, These are God's words to the people God blames for the tidal wave of empire that is destroying Jerusalem. And if you need proof that God feels this way about these people, just read chapter 28 and chapter 27. What you would expect in response as God is writing a message or typing a tweet to the exiles is something along the lines of, See? Did I tell you? Why would you not just listen? Mm Mm-hmm. But what we see instead is a God who absolutely refuses to give in to the temptation to shame, to give in to the temptation to cause further suffering. They know. Jeremiah told them often enough and publicly enough that they know. And so God does what God always does, refuses to dwell on the past, Recenters them in the here and now on what will bring them life. Build houses, plant gardens, multiply, live in shalom. Now, this is not, as some would call it, cheap grace. Just because God refuses to dwell on the past does not mean God is ignorant of the past. Way back in verse 4, it reads, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the whole community which I exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. God is taking responsibility for what has happened. And we should probably pause 
and hover over there for a moment this idea that God is claiming responsibility for the pain and destruction and refugee status of an entire people. That make anyone uncomfortable? This is one of those texts that makes us wonder, huh, maybe it really is a wrathful God of the Old Testament. Or it's a text like this that gives rise to ideas like God is punishing you for your sins. Or even the one that's no less difficult but sounds a little bit better. God just wants to refine you, to burn your sins out of you. And so God sends punishment. And I think we need to be very clear. None of that is at play here. First of all, God did not send the people into exile in order to refine the sins out of them. God begged and pleaded and asked and persuaded and cajoled and gestured and demanded that they stop their sin in order to avoid the exile. Jeremiah 26 verse 3, God says to Jeremiah, Speak all the words which I command you to speak. Do not omit anything. Perhaps they will listen and turn back each from their evil way. God does not bring punishment in order to stop sin. God sends messengers to do that. And often, they're the kind of messengers that we really don't want to listen to. (laughs) So that's preaching point number two. Who are the messengers in your life right now? Who are the messengers in your people's lives that they may need to listen to? But to return to that theological idea of God taking responsibility for trauma, what does it say that God exiled the people from Jerusalem to Babylon? O'Connor, in her article on Jeremiah, Teaching Jeremiah, says that the book, with its fragmented language, painful poetry, and disjointed structure, is that way because it is a book that emerged from trauma. For people who undergo trauma, she writes, quote, former beliefs that once anchored people in place with a taken-for-granted certainty shake apart. And for many, God appears either unfaithful to past promises or too weak to control the earth properly. When disaster happens, people need to know why. Not only in order to have a sense that another disaster can be prevented, but also to find an explanation that puts some order into exploding, roiling chaos. It's interesting because if we look at lamentations, like you said last week, Tim, they brought order to the chaos through structure, through the actual physical structure of the poem. Here, they bring a theological order to the chaos by saying this is God's responsibility. We may not like this theology, but we should at the very least honor it as the attempt of a people to keep faith in their God in a time of chaos and to actually empower themselves in a time where it seems everything has been stripped away from them. O'Connor writes as well, trauma and disaster studies show that those who take responsibility for their situation, those who blame themselves, even in cases of catastrophic illness, fare better than those who remain passive recipients. Accepting responsibility changes victims into agents. And remember what God says about what they should do now that they have been brought there. Build houses and live. Plant gardens and eat fruit. Multiply. Live in shalom. Good luck with this one, preachers. It's not an easy one, but if you can hang on for the ride, there's a lot of fruit to be picked here. Yeah. 
who knew that the Bible would have a timely message for us today? <laughs> yeah, right. No joke. <laughs> well, thanks, Rachel, for your work on that one. Folks, go to iTunes and subscribe to First Reading Podcast. If you're somebody who's been uh, kind of listening to our episodes on our website, that's wonderful. But you'll help us grow our audience if you can uh, take some time at iTunes or where you get podcasts online and subscribe to the feed. That's good for you because you get episodes right away, but it's also good for us in helping get the word out about first reading. That said, you can find out information about us and our guests at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching.